We're going to be looking at this psalm, 133. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. You're probably not supposed to have favorites. It's all God's word. And yet, I do very much like this one. So it's a joy to be in. And I hope that by the end of it, you'll really love it as well. And it has this whole thing to do with unity. Unity. It says there in verse 1, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Unity is one of the great hopes of humanity in a general sense, isn't it? Not just Christian. It's something that is the goal. It's seen as when humanity makes it, that's when humanity will be united. Of course, there's progression in all sorts of um, ways in society. Um, Some people mark that uh, the progression in terms of technology or in terms of uh, society or economic, uh, uh, I can't say it, economic progression. But I think on the deepest level, it's unity, isn't it? That people really see that's where we should be heading towards. We want people to be at peace with one another. That's why we see war as such a horrendous thing. And this is what the whole world agrees that is the goal that we should be heading towards. And it, it's on the broader sense, it can be political. Uh, I'm not, I'm no uh, specialist, no uh, expert, but there's this guy called Karl Marx, of course, who uh, he wrote on socialism and con- communism. And that's to do with class struggle. And he thought that uh, t- for humanity to be united, um, he saw it as being the top-down kind of uh, political leaders had to almost give up uh, their rights, as it were, and the, the, the workers, so there's two classes in his mind, there's the workers and then there's the elite, and they say, no, uh, there shouldn't be this disunity, that everyone should be equal, but of course it, it doesn't work out that way, because we see communist countries and there's it's sometimes the most unfair places in the world. Um, Unity in our country is interesting, isn't it? Where the Scottish independent, uh, uh, Scottish referendum has just been and gone, and we're still better together, as they say. And again, in the context of our country, there's an idea that we are better together. That's what the voters said, just, um, that it is better together. And again, yes, we want to agree with that, don't we? We want to say it is better together on the whole, but also working together. Because it's something that touches each area of life, in religion, um, in schools, in the workplace, uh, social media as well, the unity and connectivity in that. Apparently Facebook has been described as this by itself. said, Facebook is a social uh, utility that connects you with the people around you. So apparently it's not all about cat videos and about ice bucket challenges, but it is supposed to be about bringing people together. It's about unity. That's what it's all about. And in the adverts on TV, it's all about bringing people together. You can sell your coffee by saying, oh, it'll bring you closer to your friends. It's silly, isn't it? But it's deeply rooted within us. I went to my first cast game uh, on Thursday. Yeah, I know. It was an experience. But again, it's it's about investing your hopes and coming together as a people to support your team. There's unity there, and there's there's an identity to be found in there as well, isn't it? It's interesting that we all seek in all aspects of life to find unity, 
to be at peace. But so often it's, it gets boiled down to just getting along with each other for the sake of getting along with each other. It's the sake of, we want to have peace just because it's nice to have peace. But there's something deeper that we see in our passage, because this passage, it says it's amazing. It's a beautiful thing when people are united. But there's a deeper reality to it. It agrees with the goodness of wanting to be united with each other, wanting there to be peace. But it needs something to unite us, and not just for the niceness of it, but uh, for a greater goal as well. I was chatting to a guy um, at a CU event uh, a couple of years ago, and I think he was, he was working through this kind of communist thinking, or at least socialist thinking. And he said, the kind of thing where people need to be united, people need to, and he got this firmly in his mind, but when it came to me asking him, well, what is going to unite absolutely everyone? He was scuppered. He didn't know the answer. Because, of course, people can support rugby, but is that going to unite everyone? Well, I suppose not everyone here likes rugby, so not everyone's going to want to stake their claim even in rugby, let alone Cass, who have just fallen out of the league. Sorry. But you can say that about anything. Any political um, structure... Is that going to unite everyone? I don't think so. What is going to unite absolutely everyone? Where everyone can be at peace with each other. And this is what our passage is dealing with today. In, in the start of the Bible, there's a passage that speaks about uh, a tower being built. Well, it's more like a, a temple, I suppose. And it's quite early on in the story of the Bible, and it's called the Tower of Babel, and it's where people come together for the sake of coming together. And interestingly, God sees it as a wicked thing. Coming together just for the sake of coming together for human glory is a wicked thing in God's eyes. And we know that because he, he put divisions within people. The Bible says that that's how different languages arose. Probably one of the biggest barriers in human relationships there are, isn't it? If you can't communicate with each other, it's hard to get past that. But God says no to that kind of unity. But, as I said, unity is a good thing. The Bible says here it is a wonderful thing. And it's wonderful because the most wonderful thing God himself is a unity. God himself is three persons united in love. This is the Christian God. It's a father loving his son in the unity of the spirit. And that is beautiful. He is altogether good and beautiful. And this is the bedrock of why being at peace with one another, being connected with one another in relationship is such a joy. It's because God himself is a unity. And humanity, when they dwell together in unity, and when God's people dwell together in unity in his name, do you know what? They picture the living God. It's phenomenal, isn't it? 
People think that God is just unknowable. People don't know what God looks like. What does it look like? It looks like us here today in fellowship together. Fellowship, that's a very Christian word. It means being really good friends together, serving each other, loving each other. That's a picture of the life of God. It's so good because it is what God is like himself. How's this fitting? We're looking at songs for the journey. This is a song for the journey. What I mean by that is it's a song, a psalm of ascent. So it's a song that the Israelites in the Old Testament would sing as they're gathering together for a festival in Jerusalem. It's called Song of Ascent because Jerusalem was set on a hill. And so as they're traveling up, they're physically being raised up. But also these songs are to lift themselves as well. They're to encourage themselves as they're singing. And this is a psalm of David. David was probably one of the great, well, probably the greatest king in the Old Testament. He was God's king, a man after his own heart. And he was a great uh, psalmist. He wrote this psalm. And I would expect that he himself would be in Jerusalem. That was the capital where the people were gathering. And so he was on the top, as it were, as these people were coming to worship. And I imagine what the view he must have got, maybe at the top of the temple, where he would see these flocks of people gathering in around him. And what would he see as people, as all these people from all the different areas traveled together? He would see them not only coming towards him, but coming together as a people. As they were journeying towards to worship the Lord, they're not just coming closer to the Lord, they're coming closer to each other. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? So maybe that's in David's mind as he's looking out as people gather. So that's, that's what a song of ascent is. And in, the ver- in verse 1 we see how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. Exclamation mark. He's really excited about this, isn't it? How good and pleasant it is. We see through the pen of David that it is a beautiful thing when God's people are united. When they're united. When they aren't jostling for honour, but instead when they're serving each other. And they're not looking for their own interests, but they're always looking out for the other person. When they're carrying each other's burdens, maybe literally in the sense of the Old Testament, helping each other along, but as God's people, helping each other. And look how good and pleasant it is. I'm sure all you who are Christians here today will be able to echo that in your own heart. You'll be able to say, yes, it is a wonderful thing when God's people dwell in unity. I just want to reflect on the the point that David says that it's good and pleasant. And it could be him just exaggerating it, saying it is good and really good. But I think it's more than that as well. It is that, but it's on another level. It's both objective and it's subjective. What I mean is the objective is the, the external reality of the goodness of being in unity. It is altogether right in a, in a practical sense, in the way that you could look at it and say that is a good thing that people are united, that God's people are at peace with each other because it's, uh, it means that goals are achieved, that endeavors are success, that problems are dealt with, 
that conflict is resolved, that violence is avoided. All these are objectively very good things, aren't they? It's a good thing when uh, God's people dwell together in unity. However, in another sense, it is a goodness to be felt and experienced. It's pleasant. I think that's what David getting at. It's not just a good thing out there, but it's something to be enjoyed in here. It's a delight to have loving relationships with each other, isn't it? And it's a comfort to be at peace in a family, in God's family. It's an encouragement to have support around you. It's a joy to actually really know one another and to be known. It's a great thing to be respected somewhere where you're not going to be judged. It's both uh, personally, uh, subjectively pleasant. It's deeply satisfying when God's people dwell in unity. And why should this be the case? I mean, I suppose I've got friends who are, who are atheists, and they would say that love is just a survival technique. But way back when, it was just good for people to be together because it meant they might not get killed by the whatever lion or whatever. But together, they would be able to defeat it. Is that the case? Is it just some survival technique that's written into our genes? But I think my view is the creator of this world, he is a community. He is three persons united in love. In Genesis chapter 1, it says this, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So he created humanity right at the start as two different people, but united together, one flesh. Uh, They were united in purpose, united in mind. They were united, and it was a beautiful thing. And so that's why I see it's not just a survival technique. It's because the Lord who made us has made us in his image. When we dwell together in unity, it reflects the life of God. And in the rest of the psalm, David pictures this beauty in two quite odd ways. You have to know a little about the Bible to understand what's going on here because there's some words that um, we might not get straight away. So, in verse 2 it says, It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. So if you have no understanding of the Bible, at least you know two things about Aaron. Well, three things if you know his name's Aaron. You know that he's got a beard, and you know that he's got, a, well, a robe and a collar on it. So a good, a good start, isn't it? But Aaron is a f- fascinating figure in the Bible. He was Moses' brother. Moses, a great prophet, and right back when the Israelites were in Egypt, and By the work of Moses, the Lord brought the Israelites, his people. He saved them out of slavery to be his own people and to be in a particular place. And the Lord would bless them. And Aaron was Moses' brother. So quite an important guy, really. But more than that, he was chosen by the Lord to be what's called the high priest. The high priest. So there is a whole tribe, a whole family of Israelites bigger than a family, an extended family of Israelites 
called the Levites, who were set apart, designated to be the priests. And these were to minister on behalf of the people to God. So they were set apart for work in the temple, to worship the Lord on behalf of the people, and to serve the people, and to teach the people all different things. But they were set apart out of all the Israelites to be priests. That's what it means. And Aaron, he was the high priest. He was the high priest. And just as the Levites were set apart, he was set apart from them to be high priest. He was chosen by God and set apart um, to be this high priest. And what he was, was the representative, as it were, of the people. He was to represent the people towards God. But also he was to represent God to the people. He was like a middleman, a mediator between God and humanity. He was there to relate between them, to bring the, the two parties together. That was the high priest's job. That was Aaron's job. And a mediator's needed because the Lord is absolutely holy, pure and spotless. And yet his people that he's chosen are stubborn, they're hard-hearted, and they're sinful. To, to bring these two together... There needs to be someone to, to bring peace, to mediate between them. And this person in the Old Testament is Aaron. So that's what we're thinking of. And when he was set apart, consecrated, if you like, in the Old Testament, they did quite a, a strange thing. He got absolutely drenched in oil. Absolutely drenched with the stuff, with oil. And this oil was precious. It had very specific spices mixed with it to make it beautifully aromatic. It was like a, a perfume. And this, although it was so costly, it was kind of lavishly poured onto Aaron's head. And as we see, it would flow down onto his beard and all over him. Think ice bucket challenge, but with Bertolli. Just, poof. that's what it was like, just everywhere. And as it would flow down, of course... It would cover all parts of him, kind of poetically uniting all of him. I suppose that's what David's getting at. But whilst filling the whole room with this beautiful fragrance, it's quite a scene, isn't it? It'd be great to have a, I don't know, one Sunday just to see what it'd be like. I reckon Paul should do it. <laughs> Bertali challenge. There we go. I don't think that would start off. But that's the idea. And it's to show that the whole body was consecrated, it's being united, and it would all be glistening and beautified to be shimmering the light. That's the picture. That's what's happening and being referred to here. It's the precious oil running all over Aaron, poured on the head, but descending down his whole body. And in verse 3, we have a very similar picture that David uses. You might think, who's this guy called Herman? Well, actually, Herman's a mountain. Um, it's actually the, the tallest mountain, the greatest mountain in Israel. It's the tallest one. And so we can see how it relates to the high priest as well. Even the name high priest says it's, it's high. Uh, it's, it's this particularly great um, person, the representative, uh, Aaron. And the picture moves on to 
Mount Hermon, the highest mountain, the high mountain, I suppose you could call it. And I'm rubbish at geography. Maybe you'll remember from your school days, um, but clouds form on high mountains, and that's where the dew starts to collect. And so the picture is, because this is the highest mountain, that's where the dew forms. And as the day goes on, as morning dawns, the dew descends, and it's going to cover the whole area. And of course, dew's gonna look, dew is going to look a bit like the oil, because it's going to glisten in the light, and it's going to cover all the areas. There might be different kind of bits of scenery. There might be trees or rocks or plains, but it's all going to be covered in this dew. It's going to be united, as it were, by this dew that's covering it, that's descended from this high mountain, Mount Hermon. And then the second part of verse 3 says, For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. And this is explaining what the first two pictures are. We can't really see it so much in our translation, but bestows, hasn't that word bestow in our English, translates from the Hebrew in a kind of descending way. So just how we've seen the oil descend from the head of Aaron down on his body, and just as we've seen the dew of Hermon descending onto the surrounding mountains. We see here that it's the blessing of God that descends and it's uh, even life forevermore. That's the blessing. It's descending. It's God bestowing it. But where? Because David says here, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. And he seems to have forgotten the most important bit in that sentence. We're thinking, where? <laughs> Where? We want to know where this blessing is. It seems like it's such a unique thing. Then if there's only one place to have this blessing, if there's one point that, um, if there's one high priest that the oil's going to flow down to, if there's uh, this one mountain that uh, the dew spreads from, then where's this Lord's blessing? Where are we to find it? Well, I think, I think we see where by... David alluding to it in the pictures themselves, in the pictures themselves. So the picture of the high priest and the picture of Mount Hermon, they point to where this place is, where the point of blessing is that runs down. And we see how this becomes a reality for God's people as well. So both these pictures picture the anointed one, the anointed. So anointing means basically to be poured on so the high priest Aaron he was anointed he had this deluge of oil on his head that covered his whole body and that's anointing anointing and I don't know whether you know this but Christ or Messiah they mean the same things Christ Messiah and what they mean is anointed one it literally means anointed one, the one who is anointed, has stuff poured on them. And so we could say that Aaron, he was a Christ because he was anointed with oil. But I'm sure uh, 
I'm sure in your mind you're thinking, well, I know someone else who is known as the Christ. And it's, of course, Jesus of Nazareth who is called Christ. Christ isn't his last name. It's a title. It's to say that he is the anointed one who Aaron the high priest pointed towards. He was a little picture in the Old Testament to point believers to the one who would come, the Messiah, who would be anointed. But of course, Jesus wasn't merely anointed with oil. That was to picture him being full of the Spirit of God, full of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ is our high priest. He is the high priest. That's what anointed one means. But he's also the mediator between God and man. So just how the high priest Aaron would mediate between uh, God and humanity. He would bring the two together through the sacrificial system and various bits. But he would be the middleman to bring them together. And the amazing thing is that Jesus, who is God, God the Son, he became a man to be our mediator. So he's fully God and he's fully man. So he can bring the two together. No other person could do it. Aaron was just picturing it, but Jesus does it perfectly. He has the power to bring us to God. Jesus is the high priest, and he's our leader and representative. Just as an aside, I just want to encourage us that because Jesus is our high priest, we can have full assurance of salvation. It's not arrogant to say that we can know for sure that we are saved, all because Jesus is the high priest for us. He is our high priest. Because your relationship with God is all based on your high priest's relationship with God. If you look inward to see how well you're doing at the Christian life, you're not going to have much assurance. You're going to go up and down as days go by thinking, oh, I'm, I'm not doing so well with my walk with the Lord. I'm not sure if I'm saved. But you can have full assurance by not looking within, but looking without, looking outside yourself, fixing your eyes on Jesus, that he has died for your sake, that he is both fully man, fully God, and he can bring you together with God. And in him you can have complete assurance. Not because anything you are, but all because of what he is and what he's done. You can have complete assurance. It's an incredible thing that he is our high priest. And he is anointed with the Holy Spirit. So you think of, the, think of when he was baptized. Uh, I think it's in Matthew 3 where he gets baptized. The Son of God gets baptized. And even that, he's, he's associating with us. He became a man just like, just like all of us are human. And he doesn't just stand aloof with the rest of humanity, but... He associates with them. He stands in the queue of sinners saying, I need to be cleansed. He didn't need to be cleansed, but he associated himself with them. And when he was, um, when he was baptized, a voice from heaven, the Father says, this is my beloved son. This is my son who I love. And the spirit, the spirit in the form of a dove, descended upon him, descended upon him. Interesting, isn't it? 
the blessing from heaven, the Holy Spirit descended on this man, our high priest. And in another place, in John's gospel, it says that Jesus is the one who is, who is anointed with the Spirit without measure. He's full of the Spirit without measure. And so he is the anointed one who is utterly full of the Spirit. And of course, as the, the meaning behind this is as we are joined to Jesus by faith, his Spirit descends on us. His Spirit descends on all of us. So just like how the Mount Hermon, the dew would spread across all the surrounding area. And so if we're connected to Jesus, the one who is exalted, the, the Most High, if we're connected to him by faith, then his Spirit will descend on us. That's the kind of picture that we see. But we must be joined to Jesus. Now, I said that we have to be joined to Jesus by faith. And it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing. What's it mean to be joined to him by faith? Well, it's, it's kind of like a marriage. Uh, it's like when, it's like in a marriage ceremony when you say, all that I am, I give to you, all that I have, I share with you. And you share everything with the other person. And it's no longer living two different lives, but one life together as a husband and wife. That's what it means to trust in Jesus. It's to come to him and say, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. And he says the same. But what do we bring to the relationship? We bring him all of our stuff-ups. We can't bring anything good to the relationship but we give it all over to him and he deals with all of the wrong things because he's died for them. But Jesus, he gives us all of his blessing. It's through that union coming together that the Holy Spirit is given to us, that it descends on us. It's being united to him in that, uh, in that union which is like a wedding. And so... Being a Christian isn't so much as just ticking a box on a form or just having some vague idea about God, but it's about being united to Jesus by trusting in him, by doing life with him, saying, actually, he is my life. And it's through this union that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit that the Father pours out on his Son, our Saviour, and as it flows down on him, it flows on all his people who are connected with him. And what this means is that we're not just only joined to him, but we're united as a people also. The Spirit's work is to bring peace. Because if we're each individually united to Jesus, then of course we're going to be united to each other. We are united to each other. We're sharing uh, our life who is Christ together. We have, we're connected in the deepest sense of our reality if we're each Christian. And it's the Spirit that brings peace as well. It's the Spirit's work to bring peace. Because it was a, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it, to see the dew glistening on a morning. 
to see how it is also kind of uniform. It's different, but it's, it's all kind of united in, in the sense that how it looks the same, glistening. And it's the Spirit's work to unite us as a people, to bring us together. And we, we need to come together. And we need to not just come together for togetherness's sake, but we need to do it for Jesus' sake. As we're united to him, we should be coming closer to each other in peace. But what's this look like? Because church is a work in progress, isn't it? We're not this perfect picture of a family getting along. Although we do, in a sense, reflect the life of God. But we do it in an imperfect way, don't we? Because there are various barriers between us. But what we have to remind ourselves and work through is that Jesus died to bring peace. It says this in Ephesians. It says, For he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups, this is talking about the division between Jews and Gentiles, kind of two different types of Christians back then, but we can apply it to to the different barriers to us. So, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to, to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. It's clear, isn't it, how it relates to our passage. That Jesus in his death has eradicated all the barriers that as people we have set up. So no matter what kind of differences we have, race or language even, or different class, I suppose you could call it. It should all be eradicated, not because of just getting along's sake, but because Jesus has died so that we can have peace with one another. And it's as we're coming together, as we're joined together, we're being built into a temple. The picture in the Old Testament of this psalm is as they were coming to the temple, the reality is they're coming together to be the temple. It's the same with us. And it's God dwelling in his temple by his spirit. The spirit that brings peace. But also, this blessing it is life forevermore. Life forevermore. 
This is eternal life. This is the life that God offers. And it's not forevermore in just the way that it's existence that keeps on going. It's not just a continuity, but this is a life of richness. It's eternal life in the sense of a fullness of life, which is ongoing, it is forevermore, but this life is a rich, joyful life because it's God's life shared with us. And we, as God's people, who trust in Jesus Christ, we are the place where God gives this life. Jesus is the place that he anoints with his spirit. And it's only his people who are gathered, connected to him by faith, where this life flows down. And so what does all this mean for us today? I think, first of all, it means that we've, we've got to view each other as extra special. We need to see church as something amazing. That's a joy. It's not that we have to go to church. It's that we get to go to church. And what I mean by church, it's not just this building. It's not just this place that we meet. It's God's people. Church kind of means assembly, the gathering people. It's these people. This psalm definitely gives us a higher view of church. It tells us about God's view of church. And also, it should teach us to enjoy church. David starts the psalm by saying, how good and pleasant it is. It spills out from him. He just glories in the fact that how wonderful God's people are when they dwell together in unity. And so I think it's a great thing and something that we should work towards in enjoying each other. Enjoying each other. But I should also mention some people struggle to fit in with church in how that we do things. And I don't want to exclude people because they don't do things the the little ways that we do. Because we do, without thinking, set up barriers, don't we? And they do need to be broken down with the Lord's help, but um, through the cross of Jesus. But because the church isn't just this service, it's not just on Sunday, but it's us, the people, it means that no one should be excluded, even if they find it uncomfortable in big groups or whatever they might find difficult. But they shouldn't be excluded, but they are part of us. They share in the rich blessing of God. But also, another application for us is that we should pray for our church and for the church uh, nationally and across the world to be more like heaven. Because this is the blessings of heaven coming down to earth. We're to pray that part of the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Church should be a little outpost, a taste of heaven because it's a little oasis of peace, of unity, where Jesus is honoured. And so the world will continue to strive for peace, won't it? In all, I suppose, in all areas of life. But we as believers have Jesus, the Anointed One, who is the Prince of Peace. He is our leader, our representative. As the Spirit works in our lives, we will get a taste of heaven. 
And we will see relationships heal as we see people trusting in Jesus. It's all his work. But little by little, as we're journeying, coming towards the Lord, we will come closer together. And people who come to church, who are still reflecting and thinking through Christianity, well, they'll look and see God's people. And what will they see? They'll see a beautiful thing. They'll see brothers and sisters dwelling together in unity. All because of Jesus. Isn't that the most attractive thing? Isn't that what the world is longing for? Isn't that what we can offer people?